welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome back to episode 20 of A Congruent Life, where we're continuing to explore and share inspirational stories of authenticity. I'm Andy Gray, and thanks very much for joining us today. This is episode number 20 of A Congruent Life. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Marinus Koning, a retired brain surgeon who is now doing some amazing work in Ethiopia through the nonprofit that he founded called Reach Another Foundation. He has some really great stories to tell and great wisdom to share. This is one of those conversations that could have gone on for several hours. It was a real challenge to keep this to a reasonable length in order to share it with you as a podcast episode. Here's part of our conversation, starting with him discussing the work that Reach Another Foundation is doing. The Reach Another Foundation happened as a consequence of me uh, retiring, really. When I retired in 2008, we went on a, a trip around the world, a semester at sea. My wife taught for semester at sea, and I was her cabin boy, so I had all the good parts of traveling. And one of the people that I met on the ship was, uh, was a guy from Ethiopia. The only thing I knew about Ethiopia was that the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon. And then there is a thing in there uh, somewhere. One of the apostles is asking a guy from Ethiopia who was reading the Bible in Hebrew. And he says, do you understand what you read? And that was the sum total. Other than that, there was a war in the 1980s where everybody was dying from, from starvation. But it turns out that Ethiopia is absolutely a fascinating place. And it's very old. It is uh, predominantly Orthodox Christian. And it was evangelized way before the Catholic Church was even thought of. There's so many interesting things about it. So when I came back from that trip, the voyage, I should say, it's called a voyage, you know, I decided I wanted to uh, work with Medical Teams International and do disaster relief work and they said now first before you do that you have to do a uh, what they call a regular mission I said oh in that case I want to go to Ethiopia so I went to Ethiopia and I wound up at this uh, Korean hospital in Addis Ababa uh, and that had just been started three three years earlier it turns out that my skills fit perfectly with what they needed I don't like the, the hit-and-run kind of medical efforts, you know. I always thought that that was more of a personal adventure rather than, than of serious consequence for the rest of the world, although in aggregate, of course, those are really good things. But I kept going back there, and I wound up teaching and doing things that over the last five years have brought real results. And one of the things I did was work with uh, neurosurgeons in training. I was doing the trauma part, uh, and they were doing the brain surgery. Uh, but there's only three neurosurgeons in all of Ethiopia, and that's 90 million people. So there's one neurosurgeon for 30 million people. And you can imagine that they can't do very much. So what I saw was that these mothers would bring in their babies with water on the brain, and they would just sit there. They Usually they can't read or write, and they're young, and they don't understand anything about medicine. And a lot of them just sort of fall by the wayside. 
I did a calculation with one of the uh, neurosurgeons, and we found that there are 2,500 of those babies every year that are born. And I thought, wow, you know, at home, these babies are diagnosed right at birth. Uh, then they got surgery just in uh, inside a couple of months. And then once they have that shunt put in place, then they grow up like normal people. In fact, I gave a talk about our foundation a couple of months ago. And afterwards, a woman came over to me and she she said she has hydrocephalus and she had a shunt operation. And she's in her 40s. And I asked her what she did. And she said she was the head nurse of an intensive care unit. And so that's the model, right? The, the model is that any of those babies really should be able to grow up and be an intensive care nurse or a doctor or a surgeon or so. And that's what they didn't know. And when I talked to the head pediatrician at the University of Addis Ababa, she said, what do you want to talk about them for? They all die. And so I thought maybe I can do something about that. So that's what caused us to start to reach another foundation. And we worked with the neurosurgeons to put together what they call hydrocephalus campaigns. What we do is we find operating time in the weekends when the operating rooms are not used, and then we hire an overtime crew, and then we operate on these babies. We are now at a point, last year, we did about 200 babies, and this year we're on track to double that. And uh, when I was in uh, in Addis uh, last month, everything is lined up to do a campaign every weekend and operate on a dozen babies every weekend. So it's a pretty impactful thing. And then what we decided is to help them build the neurosurgery infrastructure in Ethiopia. That means that with the campaigns, we train the residents. And we also, of course, save the lives of these babies. And promises that in the future, those babies will be just like that nurse. They'll be able to grow up normally. And our plan is to operate on 5,000 babies over the next five years. That's a pretty ambitious goal. That's amazing. Let's maybe talk about some of your own early journey. Um, what were some of your experiences as a child that maybe oriented you in this direction to, to be taking this path toward, toward medicine and toward healing others? Well, you know, when you think about authentic living, one of the sort of immediate thoughts is that an authentic person follows their dreams. And uh, I think that's probably true, but I think that there are motivations that you learn about that really are determinants of, of your life. Uh, most people never really find out what they are, but uh, sometimes you become aware later that those are things that, uh, that determined who you became. I grew up right after, I sorry, I was born in uh, 1946, about a year after World War II, and uh, my family uh, lived in an area in Holland uh, where there was a big battle in, in the fall of 1944, and my parents lost everything that they had in that battle, and they became refugees. They wound up having to go north, you know, the Holland was liberated below the, the Rhine River, but uh, the battle was about the last bridge that would give access to Germany. So my parents went north and they endured what the Dutch called a hunger winter. And they lived in the sort of the, the middle part of Holland, uh, but especially in the cities of Amsterdam and Rotterdam and The Hague, people had absolutely nothing to eat and they, they tried to survive on uh, on tulip bulbs and stuff like that. 
what they did was they sent their kids out of the city. And they said to their kids, just walk east and you'll find a farmhouse. Knock on doors and people will feed you. And my mother was almost, uh, this is her story, was on a Sunday and she couldn't go to church because she was about ready to deliver from my, uh, my sister. And these kids knocked on the door and uh, asked for something to eat. Uh, my mother decided on the spot to give each of them a slice of bread. And of course, the kids were very happy. And then she closed the door and all of a sudden she thought, oh my goodness, you know, I've given away all of the bread for the week. And that's how starved they were. And she's told that story, of course, many times. And so I see periodically in my mind's eye, I see those kids knocking on the door. And I think that's been one of the, one of the things that turned us towards uh, serving others. And in fact, my parents said, whatever job you have, if it doesn't help others, it's not worth doing. And so maybe it was not such a secret. What were your takeaways from such a profound experience of these starving children or, or hearing the story of your mother interacting with these children and, and giving away a week's ration of bread? Well, the significance is, to me, it's a story. But, but what I got with the story was the profound emotions uh, of theirs. And it's not just this story, but it was the experience in the war where the terror of the Nazi occupation and people getting killed right and left and uh, losing everything that you have. And my sister, my sister was born, but uh, they didn't have food for her. And then the doctor came and he sort of picked her up and, and held her up by one leg and sort of threw her back in the cradle and said, well, she's probably going to die if you don't feed her. And my mother broke down and said, well, you're refugees. And, and he, the doctor said, my, my God, why didn't you tell us? They can get you food stamps. And so that's how my sister survived. So there's layer over layer over layer. Now, I grew I was born in 46, and uh, that was in the time after the war, and there really was nothing. And I can't say that I, I suffered from that. It's just that there was nothing. And uh, so life was hard for for our parents, but they were always very upbeat. And I, I guess what I'm trying to explain in a way is the significance of the World War II experience uh, for my parents. And, and probably the best thing to say is that it was the life-defining uh, time for my parents. And it was interesting. I was in my office in Redmond uh, some years ago, and uh, this guy walks in, and he was in his, probably in his 70s then. And uh, he says, I hear you're from Holland. And I said, yeah. And he says, I've been in Holland. And I said, let me guess, September 1944, 101st Airborne Brigade. And he says, yeah, how'd you know? I said, well, there's not that many people your age that were in Holland when they were young. Mm. And I said, I want to thank you on behalf of myself and, and the people in Holland for liberating, liberating us. And I said, uh, you know, that was the that was the life determining experience for my parents. And then he says, well, it was for me also. Then I, I realized that in Holland, Everybody had war experiences and everybody could talk about it. And it was part of, you know, give them a couple of drinks and stories start happening. 
but for the people that come back from these foreign wars, uh, they don't have that environment where where people really understand. And I think that, you know, when I now look at, let's say, the, the, the PTSD from the people from Afghanistan, uh, it's a different thing. You know what I mean? I think it's uh, interesting that when you and I start talking about authenticity, one of your first responses is about your experience as a twin. I wonder if you might talk a bit about that. How has being a twin influenced your life in retrospect as a as an individual and as a you know closely coupled with your sibling for the longest time and, and still on many occasions uh, i think in plural it was all it was always we because we did everything together you know of course when you're a twin in in a, in a way half of who you are gets split off even before before you turn into a human so I like the I like the kid. I'm I'm only a half an egg. Just think about what I could have been. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I didn't know any better. And they the neighbors called us Jan Dickey. They combined our names because we looked identical and we dressed the same and and they just couldn't tell us apart and so you differentiate in a in a, in a in a different way. My my brother is more of a, a practical person. Uh, I'm I'm more of a philosopher, if you will, for lack of a better word. But in, in terms of the conversation now, we uh, most people just have that single identity. But in a way, uh, being a twin is uh, is having multiple personalities, except that they're in different places. And uh, we had different career paths. My my brother is still in Holland. He's, he also became a surgeon, by the way. And uh, uh, we see each other. In fact, one of the nice things about going to Ethiopia is that we go there uh, together. And and that's uh, probably one of the one of the few times that we wind up operating together. And that's that's very special. Uh, but when I see him walking around. Uh, I, uh, he's, he's exactly like me, his, his posture, his, uh, uh, his haircut, his ADD, his, his laughs, his, uh, his, uh, irritations. It's all exactly like looking at myself and, but I, I really like him and, uh, I admire him a great deal. So, uh, does that make me a narcissist? I guess I'm interested in how you know, with these experiences growing up, and, and you talked about this perspective instilled from your parents about helping others, but how did that translate into a medical career? Did you have a, a call? Did you feel really clearly as a child, I want to grow up and be a doctor? No, uh, it didn't happen like that. But like I said before, my parents were really service-oriented people. My father was an accountant. He was he was always involved in in uh, community organizations and and he helped build churches and he helped build nursing homes and things like that. So that was that was sort of the the ground layer of of who our family were. Uh, but then, as an accountant, he would get up at exactly seven o'clock and then at exactly a quarter to eight, he get on his bike and ride his bike to work and then. Uh, exactly at six o'clock he'd leave, and at a quarter past six he uh, he'd come home. And and when he was five minutes late, my mother was convinced that he had an accident. And I thought, I'm not going to live like that. I I want to be my own boss. And 
One thing my father did was travel to Indonesia uh, after World War II as part of uh, what we called police actions in uh, in our colonies in, in, in Indonesia. And, uh, uh, and that was another one of the things that he had endless stories about. And, and I'm sure that uh, that installed his desire to travel. So uh, when I was 14... I decided that I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to travel and I wanted to work in the third world uh, and I wanted to be my own boss. And so that's where that motivation came from. And then and then like anything else, once you, uh, once you uh, have a goal like that, then all you have to do is keep going after it. And it determined my life until, until I was a doctor. You spoke some too about as a as a teen you encountered Hildegard of Bingen. Being drawn by mysticism at such a young age is is pretty remarkable. Well, it was entirely an accident. It was in Dutch literature class, and uh, I was probably about fifteen, and we were uh, we were working through old old Dutch literature. And uh, Bingen is a town in what now is Germany, but it's really uh, just a little ways away from my home. And so Hildegard von Bingen really was my neighbor, except she lived uh, oh, in, 11, in 1146. And so her poetry uh, we were reading. And it was the most incredible experience for me it was tremendous ecstasy and and beauty and wonderful visions and um, uh, it was it was really extraordinary it completely bowled me over it was like a million bells at a christmas sunrise it completely grabbed me and uh, i wanted to read more because of course in a in a, in a textbook there's only uh, you know a handful of uh, of poems like that and i've been chasing them ever since and in fact it's it's difficult to get uh, uh, to get your hands on on that work now but it determined a lot of i think who i am now i i wanted that and i wanted it so badly and i couldn't find it anywhere so it's always been in the back of my mind and, and quite often something that I really pursued. One of the things about those experiences is that, and, and any good experience really, is that they, they happen to you. And uh, they happen at moments that, you are, uh, that are totally unexpected. One of the pieces of the art of living, I think, is to, uh, to be aware of the possibility and then when they arise to recognize it so that you can uh, you can really get the moment of clarity that comes with it. And uh, what I found is that I maybe I, one time I sat in an emergency room waiting for something and uh, and people next to me were having a discussion that was completely unrelated. And the guy uh, the guy said something. And all of a sudden, those bells went off in my head. And this is what uh, what I've experienced at times. You know, it may be, uh, I remember sitting in Ethiopia talking to, this is a Christian hospital, and one of the surgeons there was a, uh, was a Muslim from Hong Kong. And he's a neurosurgeon, and, uh, and he is a Sufi. 
and we wound up talking about the poetry of Tabriz in the most unlikely place. And he 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 was amazing. His knowledge was just extraordinary. And another time, you know, you're talking to I was talking to a shaman in a dungeon in in Cape Town in Africa, and he was a natural healer. And uh, between all the smoke and clouds and crossbones and skulls. Uh, all of a sudden, we had a connection that uh, that brought the same experience. It's very cool. You have such a beautiful weaving of mystery and service in the stories that you tell. How do those things intertwine? How have one influenced the other? You know, both directions in terms of your spiritual journey affecting your practice as a doctor and lessons that you've learned as a doctor that have influenced your spiritual journey. Well, one of the things, if I sort of go chronologically, I, I was totally focused on on becoming a doctor. I was in medical school in Amsterdam, and everything I did was focused on that. And everything outside of that, you know, I had plenty to drink, and I uh, I had girlfriends and all of that stuff. But whenever anything got serious, I thought, okay, now wait a minute, I got to stop this because it's going to interfere with me traveling around the world and going to the third world. But that said, one of my first jobs in medical school was uh, drawing blood. And I guess that's one of the first skills that you need to learn is to stick needles in people and get blood out of there. So this one time, I uh, had to draw blood on a little man who was from Indonesia, and uh, turned out he had been a, a prisoner of war in uh, a Japanese concentration camp in Indonesia. And he was in the intensive care unit. He was in what's called reversed isolation. Uh, that means that uh, he had leukemia, and uh, he was being treated with chemotherapy, and that knocked down his immunity to the point where he was very susceptible to infection. And I was sent in there to draw blood from him because they were worried that he had infection. So I had to put on uh, a gown and gloves and, and a mask and, and all of that, just like you go into the operating room. And then I uh, I drew blood from him, and he says to me, yeah, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm drawing blood. He said, what's that for? He said, well, we need to know your blood counts so that we can uh, can treat you properly. And, and he says, uh, well... I don't think they'll make any difference, won't do me any good. And I said to him, well, of course, you know, I mean, we'll treat your infection and uh, we have great doctors and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you're going to be fine. And he sort of grabbed my hand, my arm and he looked at me with these little brown feverish eyes and he says, you know, there are worse things than dying. And I said, oh, no, 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 don't even think about that. You're going to be fine. And the next day he was dead. I came back to draw more blood and he was gone. And that man gave me uh, a phenomenal gift because uh, I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but, but that's such a truism. You know, you cannot cure everyone. And if you're not at peace with your own mortality, then you think that, as a doctor I'm talking, uh, then you think that everything is a technical problem uh, and that every person that died is a is almost like a personal defeat. And uh, what this man showed me was that sometimes, despite of what you do, 
you just doesn't work and uh, uh, that's been been a wonderful experience for me you've had this long medical career and and you started at the beginning by talking a bit about reach another foundation what's going on in your world now that you're excited about i think with what we're doing now uh, we have an opportunity to make a real difference what's the opportunity for me is that uh, i can be a little cog in in helping develop a whole new branch of medicine in a country in Africa called Ethiopia. To say that I am important there is probably way overstating it because it takes a lot of people to do this, of course. But what we are doing is we make a substantial contribution to the training of the neurosurgeons uh, we have an opportunity to save uh, hundreds and, and uh, uh, probably thousands of lives. And one of the things we uh, have committed to do is to is this million-dollar campaign uh, to uh, operate on 5,000 babies. But part of that campaign is to uh, is to build rehabilitation facilities for children with hydrocephalus and, and spina bifida. And we're finding that there is a lot of support for that. And I'm really looking forward to that. So we're building our team. We've sent, uh, we've sent 70 physicians and nurses to Ethiopia so far. And uh, uh, last year, I think we had uh, 70 weeks of somebody uh, being there. And we also had, we have helped start a school for autistic children. That's our other project. Uh, that happened just by accident. I have an autistic daughter, and one of the surgeons that I worked with in Ethiopia said, I have a son who has uh, autism. Do you know anything about that? And so we we sat down and talked, of course, and, and the next time I came there, he said uh, he wanted to start a school for indigent people with uh, autism. Uh, will you help us start that? So uh, two years later, uh, now the school has just doubled in size, and there will be 50 kids in the school. And there is one more, one other school in Ethiopia for autistic children. So there's, there's now uh, 120 children who are getting schooling for uh, treatment for autism. But we calculated that there are a quarter of a million children in Ethiopia who, uh, who are under 10 and have autism. And that's using the same number of incidents of here at home. Uh, so that's another whole big opportunity to uh, to help. And uh, we've we've been bringing teachers there and occupational therapists. And uh, that's a whole other project. We uh, we formed a sister foundation in Holland just this last month in combination with the premier autism institute in Holland. So that's that's a whole other thing. So between these two. It's an opportunity that I think has the potential of making a really big difference. And I think that uh, the most important thing for me is that you got to just get off your duff and do something. One of the things in, in South Africa, one of, the, one of the important concepts in South Africa is that of Ubuntu. Are you familiar with that? Yes, but uh, perhaps you could explain that for our listeners. Well, the idea of Ubuntu is that uh, we're all a community. And whatever happens in the community either uh, either moves us forward or it drags us down. 
and uh, it needs everybody in the community to help move us forward. And so if something happens that uh, that you don't like or that you think is wrong uh, and you don't act, then it's not just the person that did the wrong thing, but it's also your responsibility because you didn't do anything. And so the worst thing is to do nothing. And one of the really cool things in the United States that, I, uh, that I've noticed is that uh, that we now have the, the the internet petitions, and so even if you uh, are not inclined to do anything, uh, you can start a petition, and uh, within uh, within days sometimes there are a million people that have responded to the petitions, and so the people, just the average Joe, has uh, has been given the opportunity to participate again in a whole different way. It's not up to the oligarchs anymore. You know, we can clearly we've clearly shown that it's possible for the people to uh, to be engaged and express that engagement. So you have to do something, and as long as you do it, everything's cool and do it for good. The whole mission of this A Congruent Life project that I'm in, engaging in is is really about telling stories of, of authenticity and congruence, which is exactly what you've been doing. I wonder if you might have a few final thoughts about authenticity for our, our listeners and, and what living authentically or congruently means to you. It's to, it's to live by your most important values. I think that the practical part of my life is is to help other people but the underlying quest is for beauty what i've experienced is that when you look for beauty and you help other people you wind up with gratitude and being grateful is a wonderful feeling it's it's uh, i think it's i think it's better than contentment everybody has a different way i think of achieving that goal I visited the Galapagos Islands some time ago, and this is an experience that I wrote down that was pretty profound for me. Then over there, a bit away, I plunged into the sea, the water cool, the sun warm above. Beneath me, a giant school of yellow fish, each about a foot in size, as far as I could see, a magic carpet carrying me. I tried to stand, but I sank through and was suddenly below. Then, looking up, the magic had a silver sheen and a spray of diffused white light that beckoned me up again. And I must have done this 30 times or more, up, down, up, down, and once again, yellow, silver, yellow, white. And then suddenly, I became aware right there in front of me, a sea lion of the purest white doing the dance with me. And up and down and up and down and up and down again we danced, her face nearly touching me, her whiskers quivering. But her eyes, these eyes, so bright, so clear, they looked straight through my soul. And I could see there, across from me, the universe a whole. The brightness of that light, so kind, so pale, so wonderful a glow, I heard the softness of a voice warmly surrounding me. Then down and down and down we went for many miles, it seemed, into eternity. I woke up exhausted on the ocean's beach, my feet still in the sea, the water lapping at my flanks, the wind caressing me. 
I was in a monastery in, in Japan and I was studying meditation. And the, the teacher, the Roshi, uh, pulled out this antique ink tablet. And he gave me a brush that was uh, oh, probably as thick as my wrist. And then he, he uh, carried in, this guy's 80 years old, and he carried in uh, this, um, this just huge stack of newspapers. And then he says, okay, uh, your job is to, uh, to draw circles. And then uh, he showed me how to wet the brush and how to uh, wet the stone and make the ink. And then he showed me how to draw a circle. So he took a deep breath. And then with one movement, he made an absolutely perfect circle. And it was completely effortless. And it was a powerful, uh, determined, graceful uh, motion. And I thought, I can do that. And I probably drew a thousand circles on, on those newspapers. After a thousand circles, I understood what he had just done. I had an inkling of what it is to live purposely and with authenticity. I think that's really what what life is about. You should you should live with awareness and with purpose and gracefully. And I think that's how I look at it. How can our um, listeners find out more about Reach Another Foundation or get in touch with you? Uh, there's uh, Reach Another. It's it, Reach Another on Facebook. Uh, there's www reachanother.org. That's our website. It has stories from our latest escapades in, in Africa that, uh, that I think are pretty cool. You can, you can respond on the website and, and, and use info at reachanother.com and I'll respond personally to you. Vinnie Pooh said, yesterday is history and tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. So today, consider the present. Thanks very much for sharing this time with us and sharing so many cool stories and for the wonderful work that you're doing in the world. You're quite welcome. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Marinus Koenig. Please visit the webpage for this episode, which you can find at acongruentlife.net slash 20, where I'll link to Reach Another Foundation. And please feel free to share your comments there. If you're enjoying A Congruent Life, won't you please do me a quick favor and join our community mailing list, which you can find a sign-up form on the upper right-hand corner of the webpage. We'll soon be sharing some exclusive content only for those that are on the list, as well as some pretty cool giveaways that we have to share. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. I really appreciate you being here, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at a congruent life.net. See you next time.